Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the Classic Lenses podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm hosting this podcast from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Now, Carl can't be with us this week, uh, but we've got Johnny Sisson in Chicago who who may or may not do Carl impersonations throughout the show. Hello, Johnny. <laughs> Hello. Good morning. <laughs> uh, and uh, this week, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show Cheyenne Morrison from Cairns in Australia. Hello, Cheyenne. Good, very late evening in Australia. Welcome, gentlemen. It's actually it's tomorrow, isn't it now? Where you are? Yeah, it's, you are in the future. Uh, the Photography with Classic Lenses podcast now spanning the globe <laughs> and time like the British Empire. <laughs> um, now I say welcome back, uh, but regular listeners will have uh, not heard you before on the show, um, and the reason for that is uh, you know we we made a recording two weeks ago. And I made a complete horlicks of it, and uh, it just I had ten minutes of the recording, and that was it. So, um, so I'm going to reintroduce you. Um, it was a great chin wag, though. Anyway, it was. It was a great chat. I'm, it, I'm, 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 it really, really annoys me. Um, I think I was in oh, well. a state of depression for the following week until we actually got the next <laughs> podcast done. Uh, so it was, you know, and I think there were there were some people having withdrawal symptoms as well. So I do apologise to those people as well. Yeah, um, that was me. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but yeah. So um, Cheyenne is. Uh, well known in the uh, the Facebook group photography with classic lenses and uh, and he also is in a few others notably the um, the film camera gas factory uh, uh, Facebook group as well um, and Cheyenne writes lots of uh, interesting articles uh, about uh, lenses and cameras uh, because Cheyenne particularly likes to go into the history of, of lenses and, and such things um, now as I was saying last time we did this recording I had a, a a, an over two hour chat uh, with, with with Cheyenne and uh, it, I'd love to be able to do that again but frankly it's just it's just it's just not possible and uh, so uh, this time just to make sure I don't uh, cover over too many of the things we've already done and we've already sort of covered <coughs> the things we might want to talk about um, I think it's going to be a better idea if Johnny uh, sort of at least starts the conversation off and then uh, and then we'll just see where it goes from there so uh, here's Johnny Right. I was going to say that. <laughs> Here's Johnny. I can do an accent. That's an accent, Simon. <laughs> Go ahead, Johnny. Sorry, I interrupted. I just watched The Shining again this week because I, I can't. Love it. I swear that the drive-in when I was a kid. Yeah, oh, man. I can't go more than about a month without seeing The Shining. And it's it's it's, it's just an amazing film. Stanley Kubrick. We just start talking about Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, I met Jack not? Nicholson in Hollywood. He's Did you really? Yeah, well, I was friends with Marlon Brando, and yeah. Marlon Brando and him were like really buds, really, really tight. That's amazing. Because Marlon Brando had his own private island, and I used to sell for the listeners who don't know, I was the number one private island broker in the world. I know it's a weird job, but that used to be my job. And Marlon Brando was really into islands, and that's how I know Marlon Brando. Long story. Wow. The plane, the plane. <laughs> I, I don't know if you guys had that one. Yeah, we had that one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we had that. Yeah, yeah, wow. Oh, that's awesome. That's a that's a great story. I mean, you could tell. Yeah, that I was story. I was dumbstruck. I mean, I didn't know what to say because, like, <laughs> I seen Jack Nicholson in all these movies, and I knew Marlon Brando was like, I just he's like a guy, right? I wasn't like impressed by him, but Jack Nicholson, I was really impressed because he was, you know, uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest and all these great films, and it was like in person, and he's really 
he's as cool and kooky and in person as you would think he is. So yeah, that's, I didn't, didn't know what to say. There's a great document. There's a couple of great Kubrick documentaries out right now. And there's, there's one with, um, his longtime production assistant, which is excellent. But then there's another with his driver, his basically his personal driver. And, um, and he basically said, Mr. Kubrick, I don't feel comfortable around this Jack Nicholson person. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so he didn't, he didn't make him drive Jack Nicholson anywhere anymore. And then the, the other one I like is the, uh, that story um, about Nicholson. They were making that movie, uh, you know the one with the witches with Susan Sarandon and yeah, yeah, witches of Eastwick. Yeah. Thank you, witches yeah. of Eastwick. All right, so apparently they, yeah. they apparently filmed that in you know somebody's house that they rented as a you yeah. know for the as a location, right? The whole thing yeah. and everything. And they they said that after these people after the end of the filming, um, Nicholson would apparently make himself a big bowl of like spaghetti with marinara sauce and sit there in his underwear at, at the one end of the table and just you know slurp it down and they said there was just like this splatter of marinara everywhere where he where he would sit and eat jesus <laughs> just, i love that nicholson story so here's johnny so yeah here's okay johnny yeah, yeah. Here's you do a really good american accent well i lived in america for three years dude so oh, yeah, you did okay i can do all sorts of american accents i can do um oh god <laughs> now now i say it and i can't do it yeah <laughs> But yeah, I, I, I had a Native American jewelry business and uh, I traveled all over America buying jewelry from Native Americans and I had wholesale and had a shop in Australia for three years. That's Holy cow. Yeah, really loved that. It was great. Wow. The man of a thousand stories. So um, I, have to, I had had unusual jobs. <laughs> yes. That's that's great, though, because it makes for it makes for good, interesting conversation. So let's cool. get. Yeah. So. Um, I guess we could we could start there. I what I'm interested to know is, it sounds like photography has always been, um, yeah, a primary interest of yours. And I'm and yeah. what it what interests me at this point. I mean, I don't like to spend too much time on background because I feel like the past is a past or whatever. But I, what is interesting to me is how people got to where they are today. Yeah. And it seems like everyone who has been doing photography long term has had some uh, relationship with both film and digital and has probably gone through some process of doing both and transitioning one to the other. And then they've kind of come to some place where, um, yeah. you know, where, where what they do now is yeah. hopefully the, you know, whatever medium they want to do and which works for them in one particular format or whatever, then that's, that's great. Cause it, to me, it's all flex, it's all tools. Right. So I guess I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, and I know that you do some of both and I, and I'm wondering about maybe the mix at this point of how you, uh, use, you know, both formats, film and digital and, and, you know, what they mean to you. And I, and obviously that takes us right into classic lenses, of course. So yeah, I, yeah. I'd like to okay, well, I have a really interesting little story. Yeah, love to hear it. So, we didn't do this in the with Simon, but it's a good story because I was just talking to my friend in Paris and there was a photo he took and and he was telling his story how he met Kadelka, who he really idolized and and I told him, I said, Yeah, I met Kadelka when I lived in New York in the eighties and and the reason I'm saying the Kadelka story is um 
there's this dichotomy, this digital film thing, where people argue about, you know, one's better or, you know, people like, oh, you should try film. And, and they're like, no, I like digital. And they're like, I just think that's so stupid. And the reason I'm saying that we come back to Kadelka was, Kadelka was this famous black and white photographer. He was like Cartier Bresson, maybe even a little bit earlier, actually. And he was probably taken more seriously. And he was really, really like deep stuff. Um, but he did all sorts of photography all over the world throughout his life. And he ended up in New York. And what happened was he, him and his wife were really, really old and frail and they were living in this apartment complex. And uh, then his wife died and he became pretty much like a hermit and he kind of like gave up on photography. And then he had a person, I can't remember who it was, but it was a young person and that like really tried to stimulate him. So they gave him a Polaroid. Like, and not like the SX-7 or anything flash. It was just the cheap, shitty one, the one-step. Anyway, he started playing around and he was like, oh, this thing's shit. Um, but anyway, what he did, he did this amazing, amazing body of work, all shot from his tiny little apartment in New York of the view out the window, and he had this little glass figurine, like two little kind of blobby kind of things that were like kind of could be human figures. It was him and his wife, and they gave it to each other as gifts, and he he photographed this little figurines in different light from different vantage points with different filters to give all these kind of moods and just with the instant film. And so he was at the end of his life. He thought he couldn't learn anything else. He's like, you know, I'm sick of photography. And just by changing the method, uh, he opened up this whole new avenue. And I think that's what people need to learn to stop being so anal about things or whether digital's better or film is better because neither is better it's what you like and what works for you um but you shouldn't rule either out like if you've just used film you should try digital and vice versa and so okay so to answer your question um this is what i did tell simon but i'll, I'll repeat it you know uh, not as convoluted um like many people i'm 54 years old so Naturally, I grew up with film. We didn't have digital. So um, film photography was a really just an integral part of my life. Um, my dad had a Polaroid 180 camera for work and we'd take it on all the holidays and do the peel apart photographs and wait the 60 seconds and, you know, that smell. Every time I smell that Polaroid peels apart, yeah. boom, it's like a time machine, man. I'm straight back to the beach and I'm 10 years old. Um, and then I, um, I knew about digital and I really, really stuck out. I didn't want to, to do digital because I really love film. And I just like that whole analog process. So even it took me a really, really long time kicking and screaming to start using digital. I had no choice. Um, I went to the Philippines and I started my business selling private islands. And I had to photograph these islands, right? And there's no developing labs in the Philippines. And everybody, I was emailing and doing everything on websites. And I was like, Okay, I sold an island, I went to the mall, I went to the most expensive camera shop and bought the most expensive digital camera and lens I could get. So I got the Canon uh, 5D, I think it was, and I got a big zoom lens um, and I got a circular polarizing filter and, man, that was like my, my battle axe. That was my sword. That was my weapon. I honed that and I sharpened it and, man, with aerial photography of islands, I had this guy who was a retired um, U.S. Navy pilot who fought in Vietnam, and he had a 1963 seaplane, 
and him and I, we became his team and I could just give him hand signals and he knew exactly how high to fly, what angle to go, you know, and I, basically I would go to an island, we'd fly over and go circle three times at three different heights and I'd burst shoot and I'd buggerize around with a circularizing polarizing filter and I'd take about 50 shots and I'd get maybe like 12 good ones. In the end, I got to the point where I would just take the 12 photographs and they're all good. Um, so I became really, really good at it. And the photographs that I took of private islands I used to have on a server was kind of like Flickr, but it was a, a web server called WebShots. And I had the most downloaded photographs of private islands in the world, over 5 million downloads before that service closed. Um, and my photographs are still all over the internet. People are using them for advertising. People have stolen them. People are using them illegally. But, man, I'm really proud of those photographs. I really love that. But I uh, came back to Australia, um, had my business here in Australia, still doing private islands. Um, but my daughter was growing up and I was taking photographs of her with the digital camera. And, well, first, I didn't print them out. You're like, you take the photographs, you chimp them, then you put them in the computer and you look at them a couple of times on the computer and then they're like gone. And my daughter was growing up and I was like, I was like, man, I want a photo album. I want like photographs in an album so when my daughter grows up, she can have a photo album. And that was an emotional thing, but also like the, the pictures that I were getting, oh, they were great for islands. They were like fantastic for real estate, but just for people, they just were like soulless. They were like dead because what I've learned now through like tons of research and going back to film and digital and classic lenses is that through the 60s and the 70s and all these camera magazines, they all wrote about lenses and you had what they call pixel peepers. And now what do they call them now? I can't forget. It doesn't really matter. But um, these lens nerds and all they're obsessed about was sharpness. Well, so the manufacturers knew that and they basically designed these lenses just to be super, super, super sharp. But they did a fantastic job. They did such a fantastic job that the lenses became so clear and sharp and bright and everything but they had no imperfection and it's the imperfections of classic lenses that give it the beauty uh, like the persians have a saying you know when they make the persian carpets they make one tiny little imperfection because they say that only god is allowed to be perfect and i think that is why i love classic lenses and so what i did um i had my old minolta x700 which i'd had since I was living in Paris in the 80s and I bought some film, just your regular Kodak film and got processed at the lab. And I just remember that first day and I went to the lab and I was waiting, you know, for the one-hour photographs and you get the photographs back, you get the negatives in the folder and you get the prints and you go through the prints and, you know, it was like it takes a week. Like sometimes you'd shoot a roll of film and then take a couple of days to develop it and then there's all these photographs in there you forgot. And that's the <laughs> difference between film and and digital, because like with digital, it's like you see it straight away. And it's like, if it's no good, you just take another photograph, right? It's a whole yeah. different rationale, yeah. a whole different yeah. <laughs> mentality. Yeah. And it's the imperfections and it's the things you forget. And it's sometimes it's the mistakes you make. I actually got one of my favorite photographs of my daughter. I took with a manual lens and I just, I got the focus a little bit off. Um, but it's really, really beautiful. And like, if I had it, had that with the digital camera, I would have just deleted it and taken another photograph. But because it's on film, it's really special. And it's like, 
it was like a joy to discover the accident. I want to, I want to, I want, of, yeah. I want to say, Cheyenne, um, yeah. I just, I just want to share that, um, that, that feeling because I did, uh, I just done two roles in the Hasselblad. Uh, one of them completely, utterly underexposed, and the other, the other role actually loaded <laughs> the wrong way around. So uh, yeah, I was, I was really, really pleased that I couldn't actually check any of those things with, um, with, uh, so with what my was that, episode camera. Thirty-one. <laughs> you were talking about the Hasselblad. And you only got the pro the rolls processed. Yeah. Finally, all well, right. Yeah, but it's just that thing that you, you 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 don't know that you're completely and utterly screwed up until um, until after the event. So uh, yeah, that's that's one of the, the the wonders of film. And imagine if you're doing portraits, you're doing landscapes. So imagine if it's portraits and you are like old school, like 1950s studio photographer with your Hasselblad, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, who doesn't want to do that? Oh, I wish I had a time machine. That'd be so cool. Be like one of those, you know, celebrity guys with a Hasselblad. You know, everybody knows the movie. What's that movie? David Bailey. Um, uh, that kind of shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, that'd be so cool. But but imagine you're like shooting, shooting some big celebrity with a Hasselblad. And um, that's why they used to have like the assistant handing them rolls of film because they just shoot and shoot and shoot. Yeah. Yeah. Like panicking, yeah. you know, like they got one shot that's actually good because then you got some um, 1950s version of um, Anna Wintour going through and going, you know, that one's crap, that one's crap, that one's crap. What is this? Give me a better photograph. So, yeah, I mean, imagine going back in the day and, and that's why professional photographers now, like I know a lot of them, they, they couldn't shoot film. It's literally impossible because um, – it's ruled and dictated by speed um, and there can't be imperfection and there can't be mistakes. And yep. some of them will do like artistic projects on the side, but everyone's digital, which is kind of sad. Yeah. I actually know um, a few working photographers here in Chicago who, who do shoot film and they get a premium yeah. for it. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. so there are, there are, there are, be, it's not, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know, I know people yeah, like that. So too, there, are, there are people starting to do it. Yeah. It's it's really kind of yeah. fascinating to see. Well, in wedding photography, it's actually like, you know, the contacts 645, like the price of them in the last five years. One wedding photographer, I don't know who it was, started using a contact 645. Jonathan Canlas and a couple of other people started doing professional photography work with film. And they just got that beautiful, beautiful mm -hmm. look that you get with film, like Portra, you yeah. know, Portra and, um, you know, and a 645 and bang, you're a wedding photographer. Yeah, right. <laughs> a bit more than that. Yeah. Well, you have a few favorite films too. Yes. What would you, uh, I know that this is something that, that we've talked about. And I know it's on your list here that you've got a few things that you favor and you, 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 you've done quite a bit of portrait work as well. Um, so there's something yeah, I, you, you favor in particular at this point. Uh, I'm I'm still playing around. Um, I kind of would take photographs of my daughter and I don't like publish them because it's like, uh, um, but I listen to podcasts and I follow people and I see these other people that are doing portraits and I've got these lenses and I'm like, yeah, okay, it's supposed to be a good portrait and I'll like challenge myself. There's the girl, is it the Sunny 16 podcast or it's the, or the one in America, there's an analog photography one in America, and the girl's like, oh, you know, portraits, I'm so street photography, I'm so afraid to go up and take people's photographs. And I'm like, screw that. And I'm just like, I treated it like a challenge. Um, and uh, what I've come to discover is that 
it's really fun taking people's portraits. It's like it's really the nice interaction. You're like, hey, you know, I'm shooting film. Can I take your photograph? Rah, rah, and then I show them on Instagram what I do. And like, yeah, that's really cool. And, and then the photograph comes out and it's really awesome. And then like you send it to the person and well, the, the recent one I did was um, my friend, I was selling his property. He's got an amazing property with a private waterfall and a beautiful swimming hole. And every day he takes his dog down to the swimming hole in the jungle and it's just gorgeous. And I've got another friend who's got a private island and his dog died. And he said, Cheyenne, have you got a photograph of me and the dog? Well, I had a photograph of the dog. I had a photo, lots of photographs of him, but I didn't have a photograph of him and his dog. Stupid. So I thought, my friend, his dog's getting old. And I said, man, I've got to take a photograph of you. I didn't tell him about the dog maybe dying, but I just thought, I'm going to take a photograph. Let's go and do this. So we went down to this jungle swimming hole and I had that beautiful Zen Schneider lens I've got. And um, I took a photograph of him on Portra, and it's beautiful. And so I showed it to him, and um, and then I got a big print, like a 24 by 36 print, and got it framed. And he cried, like he he literally wow. cried because that whole photograph just really summed up his whole life. And I said the reason I took the photograph was that your dog is getting older, and and I didn't want you to be in the same position that my friend on the island was that he really was heartbroken, missed his dog, and they didn't have a decent frigging photograph of the two of them. So that was kind of like one portrait. And then, so I like I don't have a particular, I've just been shooting Ektar 100 because I got a one-hour photo lab and, um, you know, oh, God, it's a struggle to get them to do stuff. So with Ektar 100, it just turns out really good. And, yeah, what, nice yeah, what yeah. I did with the Ektar 100, I've got that Schneider xenon the one that simon bought and man that lens with ektar 100 it kills it totally kills it's like i used to shoot agfa ultra 100 oh yeah yeah um oh i love that film that was great film yeah fuji velvia and um kodak 100 you see the 100 ultra color i love those really really punchy saturated colors well um with the schneider lens and the ektar it comes out like Kodachrome, man, wow. like boom colors. And I took a whole roll of film with that Xenon on Ektar and like every shot was a keeper. Every single shot was a keeper except where I stuffed up the focus. Yeah, <laughs> 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 Yeah, those, those, those are interesting lenses for, for color film because I feel like they have a very uh, particular – color balance to them and i i mean i find ektar to be a very kind of neutral film sort yeah. of to begin with and so yeah, I, I, big fan. Yeah, yeah yeah but i but i can see with those lenses because they do have a very particular look to them because it what you know color photography was not really as prevalent then but i've always felt well, that a lens had, a, had a pretty pretty unique color signature to them so i okay, can see so that being a I, I talk to, I do, like Simon said, I write lots of history and I go through news groups and I contact ex-employees who work at the factory in Rara and I really, I love all that, you know, it's like genealogy, like of cameras, it's really fun and, and lenses, right? And so I was talking to this old guy that worked at the Zeiss factory in Jenner and he was really, really cool and he told me the story um, and he said, okay, so back in the 50s when color film came out, um, all of the lenses prior to World War II were um, designed for certain types of 
film, they're all black and white film, right? Yeah. But when mm-hmm. color film came out, you had um, lights in the West and you had Zeiss Oberkoschen and Zeiss Jenner. And mm-hmm. Zeiss Oberkoschen and Zeiss Jenner both did the same thing. They designed their lenses for color and for contrast. And lights designed their lenses for sharpness. And that is why I like Zeiss and Schneider lenses because Schneider did the same thing. And I think um, like if you take a Zeiss lens and then you get a Schneider lens, it's like turned up to 11. <laughs> so, yeah, I really, really love Zeiss, but i got to say I think I really prefer Schneider. Their lenses, um, and some of them are like going for big money. It's really crazy. Like that um, DKN, DKL lens that I've got, that Simon got, on eBay, they're going for like six or seven hundred dollars. I got mine for fifty wow. bucks, but it That's took a while crazy. to find that. Yeah, yeah, and because it's become pretty famous for that really punchy color contrast, and you can use Ektar, which with a normal lens is pretty, like you said, it's not overly saturated. It's kind of neutral balance. It's kind of, it's nothing, you know, it doesn't really float my boat. But Just when you've got a really cool lens, boom, it's like shooting egg for. Ultra 100 again. Wow. And just, Agfa Ultra 100 is so hard to get. Cheyenne, I, I just, just need to just um, check with you there. It's six or, you know, the, the amount of money there you just said for that for that Schneider lens. Um, yeah. That, that Surely we're not talking about the DKL version, though, are we? Because, yeah, uh, yeah. Hop on eBay and you'll see people trying to sell it. I was going to say, that, that's, that's a little bit different to actually what people are getting, isn't it? So uh, Yeah, um, but I tell you, the one that is going for pretty decent money is the Schneider Xenon in M42 mount. That does go yeah. for serious amounts of money. Yeah, the DKL one, people ask a lot of money, but you know it generally sells for around, I think, around 300 US dollars, 200 to 300 US dollars for one in good condition. I mean... I got mine, like I bought the camera and I told the guy to just keep the camera and give me the lens and I lucked out that, you know, I I just I looked at the photographs and I figured that everything looked like it had been, you know, someone had bought it, put it in a box and never used it and that's pretty much how it was. And it's like a brand new lens. But some a lot of the time you're going to get fungus. <laughs> So yeah, it doesn't I've, happen all the time. I've, I've got to say, I think I think the prices must be varying in places, but certainly in the UK, they're, they're not getting anywhere near that that amount. So certainly for a uh, a D, DKL uh, mount lens, but I mean that's actually one of the one of the the, the tips, isn't there? Really, um, yeah. D, DKL yeah. lenses in general, uh, whether they be on uh, Kodak. Uh, um, yeah, Kodak Retina. That's it. Yeah, the ret- Kodak Retina. Retina. And, yeah, uh, and actually, yeah, my one was off the. Kodak Instamatic, which is the craziest thing. They've got this shitty Kodak Instamatic camera. It's like the cheapest budgety camera that you could possibly get back in the day. I mean, I would have never even shot one back in the day. I was like, seriously? That thing's crap. And they have put all these beautiful Schneider lenses on it. And the, the 50 millimeter F1.9 lens on that is like the same that was on the Retina Reflex cameras which were really, really expensive high-end cameras back in the day. So, yeah, that's crazy. It's really weird. 
Yeah. Well, it's it's a it is definitely a bit of a tip though to actually um, to look at those because the, the mount is a bit odd um, because there's no aperture control actually on the lens itself, yeah. uh, which and it's, yeah. it lives on the camera, which is always always a little bit problematic. And that's one of the reasons why the M42 version goes for so much more yeah. because it's it's just so much it's so much easier, easier to, to, to adapt. adapt. Yeah. Um, but there are some great great lenses on on DKL mount. Um, I've, I've just just brought up. Um, ebay now and uh they're actually no they, they, they're going for quite well relatively sensible money i mean D, dkl there's uh there's one in germany that looks quite nice and that's going for 112 pounds uh 1.9 version yeah yeah it's 1.9 and uh okay. and there's a there's actually from hungary at this moment there's uh which is described as top and three exclamation well, marks <laughs> Yeah. I would buy that. <laughs> well, well, this well, yeah. Well, this this one in Hungary, it's a, it's a black one. It's often a Dixer, uh, M forty two fifty one point nine, and it's on there at one hundred and thirty nine pounds. Yeah, you do come across some. Um, there's in the M forty two. There was um, I think there's like three iterations of the Schneider in the M forty two. There was the Edixer was the early one, the first one, and then there was a later one, a Zebra. Um, I'm not a big fan of the Zebra, um, and um, and apparently the earlier one was better quality lens. So, um, but yeah, you can you can pick up the you can pick them up in M42 sometimes quite cheaply um, mm. because it's just I suppose they're not really that well known. It's not. It, I mean, Schneider to me is as good as size, but I don't think it's got the brand recognition. For a lot no. of people, I think okay. maybe. I don't think they handle as well either. They are a little bit awkward as well, and especially when you haven't got a, an aperture control ring on the actual lens it, itself. That's, which is, you know, that's a good enough reason for the, for the DKL lenses to be uh, um, lower in price because they just they can be oh, a bit of a pain. Yeah, and as someone said to me, I mean, the the Xenon is the only good one, really, really top shelf lens out of all of them because all the other ones are really, really nice lenses, but they're slow. So they're like 3.5 and 4. So the the Xenon 50mm f1.9 is the only one out of the whole lot that's like really, really top shelf lens. Yeah. I well, think there's there's a rodent stock. There's a rodent stock and it goes for like really, really big money even if it's in DKL because people go nuts over rodent stock apparently. Yeah, well, I mean, you're, you're certainly right about the speeds. Um, although... I mean, all all of these uh, Schneider lenses, and I've I've used the the twenty eight and which is a twenty eight millimeter Curtigon f four, and there's also yeah. the uh, the thirty five two, which is a two point eight, um, and yep. those are you know they they're both excellent lenses, although really good, neither yeah. yeah neither of them though were if you're going to talk about sharpness at least uh, neither of them are up to. Um, yeah, a nineteen seventies lens, for instance, in terms of sharpness. But yeah. the, uh, but interesting enough, I've I've tried the 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 one three five f four, and I did a test with that one uh, against, uh, and I put it onto a, a Nikon D five hundred. But that's another thing about DKL. It's one of the few uh, lenses you can actually mount onto a Nikon. Um, you yeah, do you yeah. do have to be slightly careful at times because sometimes the the rear element can can snag the mirror. Um, Ouch! Um, but 
you know, as long as, long as you're sensible. Um, and what I mean by sensible is if it's because it's when the lens gets closer to infinity, you get the the problem with the mirror. And uh, so if you if you uh, bring the focus back a little bit, and then just very very slowly and incrementally um, bring the the focus towards infinity, and just take take shots, you can actually feel or hear um, a very very slight um, touching. Oh. You know, and, and something that's you know, as long as you're very very careful about it, you're not going to do any damage. It's it's uh, it's more about go straight onto infinity and then uh, and then take nine shots a second in burst mode <laughs> i don't think that'll be uh, too 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 good an idea um but i did this uh test uh, with a uh a sigma zoom lens uh, which I, I set it to 135 so a modern a modern uh, sigma zoom lens at 135 and uh, i took the same shots with that and uh, with a uh, with the, with the Snyder, uh, I can't remember what it's called now. Um, it's a Z, it's a Xenon. Zenitar. Zenitar. That's it. And, uh, and taking it and taking it the same same aperture between both shots and and uh, the Snyder, which was like fifty years old or so, was sharper uh, than the shot I got out of the modern um, Sigma zoom lens. So wow, they well, pretty they, they they can be pretty. I, I would say that in particular is very very good. Whereas the other the twenty eight and the uh, the 35 mil are good lenses and they they and they they give a good look but if you if you're going to if you have to ultimate sharpness then they they don't quite uh, match up yeah they did an earlier version of that zenitar in a silver barrel and that's a really sexy looking lens yeah i don't know how good it is versus the later one but yeah well that's the one i'm talking about it was the, it's the old one oh the silver one okay yeah right yeah now it's got a really it's got a, a good reputation but i've um yeah I, I yeah I, I didn't get that I, I don't like 135 is just not like a um, a focal length I just use a lot I know everybody says like for portraits 135 millimeter but I kind of um, yeah hopefully I'll, I'll be soon arriving the Biotar 75 millimeter f 1.5 Carl Zeiss Jenna that's like I've been dreaming up yeah. for a long time I've been shooting a lot of portraits in um with 58 mil lenses, like, you know, um, the Rockor, um, F1.2, that's beautiful for portraits. Um, that's heaviest buggery though. And then I've got the, um, Prima plan, which of course everybody knows about the Prima plan. Then, um, I've got the 50 mil Xenar that I've taken some really, really, I took a photograph of my friend on the Esplanade with the palm trees behind and it looks like a painting. It's like the, there's the palm trees, but they're like someone said, it's like a painting. There's like brush strokes. It's got a beautiful bokeh. It's really, really nice. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy with that, that little Xenar lens. It's a really, really nice lens for portraits. Well, there you go. Everybody loves a good Tassar, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, yeah, okay. That took, what, 30 minutes? Yeah, okay. <laughs> and, yeah, I'm not even going to get you started on the, on the um, Prima plan anyway. We'll stay away from that one. No, I, no, I will say your your private plan, your private plan photo. Uh, I here here's the thing. I'm just gonna shit on you know digital, of course, because you're giving me the opportunity. But your shot of it on film looks excellent because I think to me that lens looks so the bad. The 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 Prima plan looks so bad on digital because it shows all of the flaws of that lens that I don't the artifacts yeah yeah that yeah, I yeah. don't think look good because it, it it everything looks too sharp on digital and it's you that portrait you shot with it 
it smooths everything out that I don't like about yeah. that lens. And I thought it was a really great shot, the one you, you recently posted. So Yeah, the guy, the busker with the harmonica. Yeah, it's a great yeah, shot. I love it's that. A great I shot. saw him today. I saw him today and I was like, I've got the photo printed. I didn't have the photo with me. I'm like, usually he's at the markets on the weekend. And I went to the shops and he was there. And I sat down with him and I gave him like $10 and I told him the story. I, I took that photograph and he was smiling and he was so happy and he's oh that's great he's a really really lovely guy so i really love that photograph because every time i've i've taken this photograph a few times and every time i've been with my daughter and i've been rushing past i'm like here yeah here's some money can i take your photograph yeah and i just kind of look up at me and i just thought nah i really want i've got this beautiful lens i want to take a really good photograph so i gave him five bucks i sat down right in front of him because he's sitting buddha style playing the harmonica so I sat down right in front of him <laughs> And it was, you know, 58 mil. So I was right up close to him. Yeah. It's a bit full on, but I wanted to get that real close up. And he kind of panicked a little bit. And I just put the camera straight down. And I just said, I'm just going to take your photograph and it's going to look really cool. And just do what you normally do. Don't like pretend to smile or do anything. Just do what you normally do. And I'm just, when I went ready, I'm going to take your photograph. So he's playing the harmonica. And he looked down, and then as he looked up, I went snap and took the photograph. So that's, yeah, and I love that picture. And Carl said, Carl looked at it and he said, hey, Cheyenne, what's that um, in the background? It's like, uh, this is a print. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, the background, it's all like smooth and shiny. And it looks like a print, like you scanned a print. I said, no, it's like, it's film. It's, from a, it's, it's, it's not digital. It's, it's not from a print. And I figured out what it was is he's sitting in front of the bank and the bank has got granite pillars. And so there's a little bit of reflection in the granite pillar. And because if I had a shot it on digital, it, it would have looked kind of weird and kooky, like you said, like, well, you don't like the primer plan. But because I shot it on film, the yeah. film smoothed it all out and made it just look like really soft and silky. So that is something that, yeah, that's like you're right. I think if you use the Prima Plan on digital, um, you're not going to get the photograph that I got. Right. Yep. That's what I. That's what I noticed about it. And why I was really pleased to see that shot because, you know. Yeah, I love I, that shot. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Very. Very nice one. It, it. It works to the the strengths of the lens versus just squeezing, you know, weird bokeh out of it. So I thought yeah, that was a someone, very nice I did shot. that. I did that photograph of the other busker. Um, and it's just funny because I, I don't have a thing about buskers, but they're just kind of cool and they don't mind having their photo taken, right? Because they're like out there like doing shit for money. So you give them five bucks and they let you take their photograph. There's a tip there, folks. If you're afraid of street photography, find a busker. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there was the, the one-man band guy and he was really cool. He had this wacky 1930s one-man band thing with a little um, electronic theme that played kind of music and he was really cool. And I loved his outfit and I took several photographs of him and then I put one up I think earlier today and I shot it with the Xenon and someone said, oh, it's really nice because it doesn't have that weird swirly bokeh, you know. I don't like that weird swirly bokeh. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's, but it's like some people like swirly bokeh and some people don't. And if you don't like swirly bokeh, get the Xenon because the Xenon, yep. is, the bokeh really is smooth. really soft. Yeah, and, smooth, and it's just really beautiful. But that's just a matter of taste. Neither's right and neither's wrong. You know, that's just a matter yeah. of taste. 
I, I like I like smooth bokeh. I like swirly bokeh. I like any kind of friggin' bokeh, man. Bring it on. But I like I like when it's appropriate to the subject. You know what I mean? Correct. And, Correct. And, and that, yeah. yeah. And that's what I find about a lot of your images is the you use the lens in a way that is a, appropriate for the image. And I, I guess I like that you don't just make pictures of Boca for the sake of it, that you're actually, you know, so I, to, to me that it shows the lens in a different, uh, different light. Um, well, you know, I'll tell you and, a funny story. Cause um, I was, who was I talking to about? So anyway, Herbert Kepler, Mike Ekman. I love Mike. Hey Mike, there's a shout out to you. Um, um, Mike loves Herb, Herbert Kepler, and I love Herbert Kepler. But he, he wrote this article about the Primer Plan back in the '60s, and he bagged the hell out of it. He says, "Oh, you know, it's it's." He didn't say swirly bokeh. He just said, "Oh, it's all blurry around the edges, and it's got no sharpness, and it and it's got to be the all-time worst lens ever, right?" So to Herbert Kepler in the '70s and the '80s, when everything had to be sharp, and he was like a pixel peeper. And he loved his Pentax super sharp lenses. So to him, the prim plan was like, you know, it was like the devil's breakfast. But now everybody's obsessed with bokeh and they want the primer plan and they, you know, and they want to do the bubble bokeh with the trier plan and all this sort of stuff because everyone's had sharpness and they're sick of sharpness and now they want something different. Neither's right, neither's wrong. It's just a matter of taste. But it's kind of funny that Herbert panned the hell out of the primer plan and now it's selling for big money. I like that. But, you know, the, the one thing, you know, like the bokeh, so um, some lenses like the Helios 44 became really, really famous and I'd really love to know who it was who kind of started that trend But because it had the swirly bokeh and if you do a shot with a certain – and you've got to do it exactly, you know. Like you can see all these photographs of really amazing portraits of girls with the swirly background in the back and you have to have everything right. You've got to be the exact distance from the model. The model's got to be the exact distance from the trees. You've got to have the light coming through the, the trees, and it's going to be the right kind of tree. So it's kind of like if you want to take that photograph, it's kind of like it's kind of like doing a studio portrait with everything is contrived to make exactly right. it's it's crafted, right? And so people um, get obsessed with buying a Helios 44 because they see all these amazing photographs of the bokeh. And then they go and try and take some photographs. Like my photographs don't look anything like that. My photographs look like shit. Excuse my language. And that's yeah. because they're trying to make the lens do right. That, well, they don't know how to to do that certain thing that that kind of lens can do. Yeah. Anal, the, going back to our our last conversation with Anil, he I I, I felt like Anil really like like he he really said that sort of same thing. Last conversation was that. You know, it's there aren't really yeah. any rules, and I and yeah. you know I'm I'm pretty much on record that I don't I'm not a big fan of that lens, and it's it's not so much that I'm not a fan of the lens. I'm I think that it's that people buy the lens often to try to replicate a particular formula. It's a one that lens. It's like yeah, the and, right, and I, I don't find that nearly as interesting. You know, I don't yeah. find it nearly as interesting as is. Uh, trying to do your own thing, I guess, you know, and it, 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 I feel like it leads people down a path for a very particular use and look. And it, it's not an easy thing to replicate either. So, and, and, and it's, I don't want to replicate that because right. it's kind of like it's become a cliche, 
You know, I've got yeah. that guy, Michelle, in Tokyo, and he's got some really, really cool lenses, and he's got the Asahi version of the 75mm Carl Zeiss Jenner Biotar. Um, Asahi made an 83mm f1.9. It's a beautiful, beautiful lens. And he said, oh, the Biotar is a one-trick pony. And that's kind of right because it's become associated with a certain style of images and um, people just try and do that with it. But I'm like friends with some photographers and on Facebook and I follow people on Instagram and they're using those kind of lenses which are famous for that kind of swirly bokeh, but they're doing different stuff. There's a photographer that I gave the contact details to Simon. Her name is Agatha Serge, and she is doing amazing, amazing photographs with classic lenses, but her lenses are modified classic lenses. There's a guy in Poland, and he's got a he's on Facebook. Uh, he's got a business called the Bokeh Factory, and he takes um, like classic lenses and then he adapts them for digital so that they're, they're perfectly tuned to use on a digital camera. Because like you said, um, Johnny, there on film you get a look and that's what they were designed for. I mean, you, you put them on a digital camera and, and you, you, you're not going to get the same look. You're going to get something different. And so, yeah, so this girl, she's got all these lenses that have been – especially pony trick by this guy in Poland and her photographs are super, super cool. Her name is Agata Serge, S-E-R-G-E. Um, so check her out. I think she's Agata Serge on Instagram. So at Agata Serge and beautiful, beautiful photographs. And she does the bokeh, but it's not swirly. It's kind of, and she does some other tricks as well, which is, you know, her photographs are really cool. So, and she's shooting on digital mostly. And Cheyenne, uh, one of the things that we spoke about in our um, previous conversation uh, was was about an article you wrote um, uh, about ah. uh, Henri uh, Cartier-Bresson. And uh, I think it'd be good if you can let Johnny know a little bit about that. Okay, so um, Johnny hasn't had it done his homework. Bad Johnny. And um, but he's reading now. Yeah, so, I have I have read it. So we're all yeah, okay. yeah, okay, okay. I read I read it uh, right before we started. Yeah, it's a skim read. Um, but basically, um, if you go into the photography with classic lenses um, Facebook group, and you can either put in Cartier Bresson or Cheyenne, um, and you'll come up with the article, um, which was published on September the tenth. And um, so basically, um. Probably nobody on in the photography world is more associated with the Leica myth than Henri Cartier-Bresson. And he became, like, in the, from the 50s onwards, like the Leica company, Lights, they really twigged that they could use him for branding and they schmoozed him. I mean, all his lenses got, you know, like VIP Rolls-Royce treatment and he would tell them, like, hey, I want this lens and got to have this and it's got to have that and he's real persnickety and they just go yes mr cartier brisson whatever you want mr cartier brisson but in his most famous period when he became the photographer that it became famous after world war ii was he started shooting in 1932 and first he had a leica with um an elmar collapsible elmar 
um, and a collapsible Summicron. But at that time, the lights lenses were um, slow and the only fast lens was Zeiss's um, Sonar um, 50mm f1.5, which um, shout out to Hamish Gill, the Sonar addict. Um, you know, that lens was really, really famous and Cartier-Bresson had a Leica. So there were businesses that specialised exactly like nowadays and it's really cool the parallels between then and now. Um, he got the lens modified to fit, um, so he got a contacts mount, 50mm Sona f1.5, mount uh, changed to a Leica thread mount. Um, there are some reports that he had the camera adapted to the lens, but I think that's probably somebody who didn't know about photography. I think it probably was like what most people had at the time was um, until lights came out with a faster lens later on, the Summicron, um, they were, people were buying the Zeiss lens and getting it adapted to use on the light cameras. And uh, Cartier-Bresson used the, um, that sonar from probably around 1933, 1934. Uh, he doesn't really say in any of his reports exactly when he got it. Um, up until just after World War II, like the late 40s or early 50s, when he started using a collapsible Summicron. Um, and so in that Facebook post, there is a really beautiful photograph um, which he took of um, the philosopher um, Albert Camus in 1941. And you just look at that photograph, man, sauna, totally, yeah, that's not like a Leica photograph. That's not a Leica lens. That's a sauna. It's got that sauna look. It's, got, it's black and white, but it's got that 3D pop. It's kind of real sharp in focus. And then you've got that beautiful bokeh in the background and he kind of, it's really cool photo because it almost, I don't know if like Camus was kind of walking and he took his photograph because it looks like the background's moving, but he's still, it's a beautiful, beautiful photograph. And that is definitely shot with the sonar. Plus um, when he died, some of his lenses were sold at Westlick auctions and some of the auctions in Hong Kong for like huge sums of money and, there was a couple of um, those um, sonar lenses adapted to like a thread mount that got sold and they were, um, you know, had signed signature from Cartier-Bresson. Plus it's in several of his books that, and several of his biographers have discussed the fact that he used the, um, the sonar lens through that formative period of his life. So despite the fact that all the Lycophiles, you know, adopted him, really in his formative period, like he was using Zeiss lenses. And that's the end of that story. <laughs> All right. That, uh, awesome. Awesome story. And I, I, I would say anybody who has not read that, uh, that little expose, uh, uh, definitely take a look for that on the photography with classic lenses uh, page. Cause it's definitely a good read. Um, check that out. So why don't we take a short break? And then I know we want to get into talking about, uh, some Tomioka lenses and a couple other things still in the podcast. So, okay, well, let's cue take the, a quick break. Yeah, cue the music. All right, be right back. And we're back, Sunbeams. Thank you for joining us. 
had a little break there. Um, I, I just uh, had a little, I had a thought while I was away there that about uh, Cartier-Bresson. Um, I saw an exhibition at the Art Institute of Chicago. I was a few years back now, but it was essentially, um, they, they have a, a, a the, the photography department at the Art Institute of Chicago has a, um, has a, a big collection of photographs and, you know, uh, not just photos, but, uh, documents etc uh, uh, related to photography um and they had an exhibition of uh proof sheets of yeah, various cool. photographers and it was it was really fascinating because it was yeah, it was kind of work. like the myth myth busting moment of the yeah, um, yeah, yeah. of the decisive moment especially for carte bresson because he really did plan a great number yeah. of his photos and he shot wow. multiple 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 you know attempts to get them just right i'm thinking of uh, that famous shot of the guy riding the bicycle uh, yeah. around the street going down and he shot that many yeah. many times to get the, the cyclist just in the right spot so well you know the modern equivalent is that one they do in hong kong where they're inside the the big buildings in hong kong and they've got the plane going over the top it's the same thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But he did it in the 1930s with a bicycle. Of yeah. course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, so it's, it's just big... kind of fascinating stuff. Yeah, I mean, well, the, 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 the thing with a lot of those famous photographers is once they became famous, they could make their own myths. And, right. you know, they mythologized themselves and they kind of like did their own PR. I mean, you know, like, sure. what was the other one? Robert Kappa. Oh, and, yeah. Photographs of Jean Kirk. I mean, total BS. Yeah, right. Poor guy. They made up this whole story about, um, you know, all and actually, like he he um, he froze. He freaked out. He was in combat and he freaked out and he couldn't take photographs. That's what happened. Yeah. Long and short of it. And no, no offense to him. I mean, like you know, Omaha Beach. Man, taking photographs at Omaha Beach. You're crazy. It was crazy that he even tried to do it. Like, in fact, he got twelve shots. Hooray. Yeah. So I think that's your classic um, taking the photographs with the lens cap on. <laughs> oh, shit. I only got 11 phot photographs on the roll. Yeah. So he made that myth and I, I think it was, uh, it was the publicist in London and the, and the newspaper and they all cooked up this story about um, the dryer cabinet and all the photographs getting destroyed <laughs> and only the ones surviving. So, yeah, fascinating myths. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, shall we uh, have a little Tomioka talk, perhaps? Yes, let's pro progress. So, um, have you got any Tomioka stories? What's your Tomioka stories? I mean, I I I, I, I have a few. Um, uh, probably um, most notably, um, I have quite a few preset lenses, which have always been. Uh, something I've I've liked a lot because I feel like they they work so well um, adapted onto especially digital cameras. Yeah, people uh, have said that. So, you know, I, I don't know that because I I I decided not to shoot with digital. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I did I did for a while and I just I didn't like it. Yeah, so, I mean, I I don't really do it much anymore. But I a lot of those lenses I picked up to shoot uh, on the Fuji. Uh, because they adapt really well and they're easy to use and it's so easy to shoot through the working aperture um, and stop down lenses are just a, they're a lot of fun and they're they're interesting lenses and well made so you have a few of those um, t-mount t-mount lenses in particular and then I guess there's probably the one that's uh, 
famous or infamous is the, you know, the different variations of the 55 millimeter 1.4. Oh, oh. Um, oh, so it's a labyrinth. Yeah, exactly. So I have, I have the, the one that is, uh, badged as a Sears lens, which I've come across. A couple, a couple, yeah, yeah. A couple of them. I've come across yeah. those really cheap on the camera. I think under both of them cost me less than ten dollars. So, yeah, it's, one, yeah. it's one of those. Lenses that, and and I have to say, it's that's probably my favorite M forty two lens is that that fifty five millimeter one four Sears Tomioka. It's just it, there's a yeah. look that's kind of unlike anything else. Um, so that would be yeah. you know high on my yeah. list. But I know you have you have uh, quite a few of these as well, or have have quite a bit of research. I've had, I've had, yeah. I've, I've had them, yeah. I'm kind of mm -hmm. like I'm like Simon. Like I buy and sell things all the time, and um, I just decided um, I want to build up a collection of like you know all early 1950s you know German silver lenses. So I kind of like steered away from all of the black ones I had. I just uh, that's really an aesthetic, isn't it? But <laughs> I don't know. That's, right. that's what I like, and that's what I want to do. That's you know that's what my floats my boat. So. I had quite a few of them and bought them and sold them and and I was looking. What happened was um, I read a few blogs. There's a few people that had the Minolta Rockor PG 58 um, millimeter f 1.2, and they were shooting on digital and um, awesome photographs, really really killer. And it was really expensive. Even this is like I don't know, like three years ago. And I was like, wow, there's got to be other stuff, right? <laughs> and so I started looking around and I bought, um, I bought a Post um, and then I bought a Reviewnon. I had a Gaff. Um, I had quite a few of them. And then I had um, the best one is um, the Post Color Reflex 55mm f1.2. Now, uh, a lot of these lenses for people, you know, listening to the podcast who want to get a really nice, fast 50 lens, F1.2. Um, before we get into the bit with Tomioka and the origins of Tomioka versus Chinon and all that sort of stuff, they were OEM manufacturers, so they manufactured for themselves Chinon and and Tomioka, and they manufactured for other companies. And the companies that they manufactured that you can get the lenses uh, to look out for is um, in the US, Sears. They manufactured for Sears. So you look for the auto Sears lenses. They were all manufactured by Chinon. I think, uh, I think they were all by Chinon, yeah. And then in Europe, um, uh, they manufactured them for Post and Review, and they were both uh, kind of – Kind of like Sears, they were big companies. One was called PhotoQuell as well was another one. And they um, they got the lenses from Chinon and Tomioka and they were rebranded. And there's also Gaff, um, the Auto Gaff. So um, there's probably that 50 and 55 millimeter F1.2. There's probably about 20, 20 different variations of that. And probably of them there's probably five or six that are really really top shelf there's probably a third of them are really really good and there's probably the bottom third are pretty okay but 
nowhere in comparison to the top shelf ones. And to, I did make a post in the Facebook group. So um, I will post up a whole lot of photographs with links so that people don't have to go crawling through the Facebook group. They can just look to the links and it'll give you a list of the ones to look for and the ones that are really good to buy. Oh, this is this is triggering something with me now um, because it's and, and it's probably it's been, I think it's worth talking about Tomioka and uh, what Tomioka is or uh, and how it's associated with uh, other brands, which is what what you've been doing there, and uh, you've you've been yeah. drawing a distinction between Tomioka and uh, Shannon. Um, ah, well, it's overlap. Yeah, and 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 this is where things get really, really muddy because one of the, one of the things I, I've I've clung on to is mm. that uh, these fifty five one point fours with the flat rear element are all pretty much the same lens. Um, pretty much, but and, and and but that's the thing. Pretty much isn't necessarily yes, that's right, and it's it's not saying no, 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 it's wrong. Uh, yeah. And, it and can't be categorical, yeah. Yeah, and 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 you've just said something there about almost like three classes of of these lenses, where some of them are better than others. So yeah. why why would that be the case if they're effectively being made by the same? It's almost like the Borg. Almost it feels like when you when you've got yeah, yeah. Uh, all, all the, these companies with, with Tommy Oka and that, that. And we've talked about it in the past how um, at the time in Japan. This was after the war, and they were uh, getting getting themselves back together again. And there was a huge uh, effort to help them get back into manufacturing, and yeah. and there was certainly um, uh, the spirit of the day was cooperation, um, and mm -hmm. that was so. So lots of companies that appear to be rivals, you 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 might think, were actually working very very closely with each other. And it was, it was well, it's actually what the system that they developed was. It was called the Zaibatsu. And um, it's a Japan post-war, America tried to impose their kind of mercantile capitalism on, onto Japan. And it, this wasn't a system that they had used and they kind of adopted some things. But in predominantly the manufacturing process and companies and everything that have in Japan is very almost the same as pre-World War II. So the Zaibatsu are basically industrial conglomerates. And the way it works, it's kind of like Toyota is a Zaibatsu effectively today or Mitsubishi or others. So it's like a big company, but what they do is under the umbrella of that company, they have little companies. So like in Toyota, there's whole towns in Japan where one town will make the wheel rims and another will just make the hubcaps and another will make um, the steering wheels. And, so, and they're delivered to the Toyota factory. So that's how it worked back with the lenses that we're discussing in the 60s and 70s and the 80s. So um, uh, Tomioka and Shinon, Tomioka um, was purely an OEM manufacturer. So they never made, um, they badged some lenses for other manufacturers. So it would be, um, uh, what am I thinking of? God. So it would be, uh, uh, there was actually one that was Chinon and it was Chinon Tomioka. So it had, it was made for Chinon cameras and it had Tomioka on the lens ring and then it was vice versa. Um, and so, uh, but Chinon made lenses, predominantly OEM for other manufacturers like um, uh, other companies 
like the big department stores like Sears and Post and Review and Gaff and all that. Um, but they also had their own cameras and sold their lenses with their own cameras. Um, and the overlap comes, as far as I can figure out with, I have spoken to a couple of people who worked at the factories in Japan, was um, Tomioka produced some lenses for Chinon and vice versa. And the thing that the guy at the factory told me was that um, because of mostly OEM production, they'd get like Tomioka would be running flat chat producing a lens and they'd get an order for, you know, 10,000 lenses from some department store and they'd say, well, we can't fill it. And they just give it to Chinon to fill the order and vice versa. And that's how the overlap got in there. So that would, that that's would, that would not also... 100%, but that's as close as I can come. And that's first-hand account. Some people worked at the production in the factories and they were managerial people. So they kind of knew what was going on. So that would indicate perhaps that because we're talking about a, a lens that looks pretty much, I'm not talking about the, the design of the body, I'm talking about the actual optics. Yeah, the elements, uh, vi vis yeah. Visually, um, they look absolutely yeah. identical to, to one another. Um, but Correct. perhaps, is that, is, are you suggesting therefore that they were working to the same pattern, but not necessarily they were, these, these uh, lenses were not no. being produced in the same place. And therefore that's how some lenses might be better than another, even though they're effectively the same design. Yeah, and I think what it might even be, all this stuff is like, none of this stuff was public back in the time. I mean, if you bought like a, a Chinon lens, it was like, you, you know, you thought that came from a factory, but it's not exactly how things got done. They had subcontractors who were making stuff and, oh, I can kind of, the, from what the people who worked in the factories have told me is some stuff got farmed out and some things, you know, it was like, they're like, yeah, well, it's some... Um, some, um, you know, mail order company in Germany, well, the quality control doesn't have to be so good. We'll farm it out to this company. And, and then, you know, they had their own badged lenses. So if it's got Tomioka on the lens ring, yeah, it's like they were proud of that and they put their name on it and it was like it was good. And then you've got the ones that are OEM, so they don't have Tomioka or Chinon on them. Um, but the quality control was really good, so they're really, really nice lenses, like Johnny's lens, um, that Auto Sears lens. I and mean, there was another guy in the um, photography of the classic lenses Facebook group, and he said, "Wow, I've got this lens, and it's really cheap, and it takes really good photographs." And I said, "Yeah, duh, because it's chin on." He's like, "What's chin on?" And that's how I started that big thread about chin on versus Tomioka, because that guy was really amazed that he got this cheap lens, um, which superficially you would think, "Well, it just came from." Sears, um, but, you know, I think back in the day, Sears, um, they weren't stupid. They kind of figured they knew where their market was and their market was people who didn't want to have, like, really expensive stuff, but they wanted it nice, like, good quality. And the Japanese were really good at punching that out. So, and the German department stores and the German, um, um, what do you call it, mail order companies, and, um, yeah, they, they all bought from them because they – they did what they were supposed to do. They, they produced really, really well-made lenses that really did the job cheaply. That's that actually leads us almost neatly when you mentioned German there. But I'm actually going. To, it's it's really uh, Swiss, and there's a there's a Swiss Chinon connection, isn't there? Yeah. So that's really okay. So I really, really love that story. If you go into the the the, the Facebook group for photography with classic lenses and you punch up um, chin on or alpa 
you'll come up with a story that I wrote. Um, and basically what happened was Alpa was probably a camera, the company that not very many people are familiar with. If you imagine what Leica is and how people all fawn over Leica and um, the fanboys all pay like immense amounts of money, well, turn the dial up to 12 and you've got Alpa. So Alpa is like a Leica that was produced like a Swiss watch. So um, Alpa was in a really incredible company and they made these amazing, amazing cameras. Just like if you hold one in your hands and you've, held, you've had a Leica and you hold an Alpa, you'd be like, wow. It's just really, really a piece of work, like an, a piece of art. And the lenses, um, Alpa made their cameras, but they never produced their own lenses. And what they did was um, their quality control, being Swiss, a la anal, um, their quality control was so famous that one of the guys that worked at Alpa told me that um, 30% of the lights lenses that were supplied to Alpa um, for the Alpa cameras were returned. So they returned 30% of Leica lenses back to lights because the quality control wasn't good enough. So that was how anal they were about quality control. And what happened was around the late 2000s when, you know, they had this really high-end um, rangefinder and some SLR cameras that were trying to compete with the Japanese and the guy that was had the American distributorship, he had met, obviously met the people from Chinon at camera conventions and they said, you know, we can make you like a really good quality camera and, you know, and we've got these really amazing lenses and he sold it to Alpa and uh, so a lot of Alpa collectors, they hate the Alpa SI2000. It's like the bastard child of Alpa. <laughs> it's like, it's like, and none of the collecting groups, like, you know, don't even mention the SI2000, they'll flame you, right? Like, That's not a real Alpa. Um, and because Alpa had their own mount, um, but what with um, Chinon did with the Alpa SI2000 was they took their Chinon Memetron, which is a really, really good camera. If you want to see a good review, go to Mike Ekman and look at Mike Ekman's page for the Chinon Memetron. He's got a huge, big review on it. And basically... They rebadged it with some minor changes and it was M42 mount and it came out with a special lens. It was a chin-on lens um, and that lens sells for pretty big money because, A, firstly, it's a really, really good chin-on lens and it's Alpa and everybody knows that Alpa lenses were really good quality. People do know that it was made by chin-on but it still sells for pretty good money because um, it had the Alpa badge on it. And so basically it was a chin on Memetron with a 55mm f1.2 and they had a 1.4 as well. Um, and it's a really, really amazing camera and it was one of the very few M42 mount cameras that had stop-down metering and that's where Johnny comes in and complains about M42 lenses. No, I like M42 lenses. I don't like M42 cameras. <laughs> ah. I'd, rather, I'd rather use them on different bodies, that's all. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, that's no, cool. I, I I I probably own more M42 lenses than anything else, actually. So I like is them. That I just, that, is that because they're yeah. easy to adapt, or they're just good yeah, ready? they're 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 really easy to adapt. And I mean, actually, they go they go great on other other uh, SLRs. I mean, I use them on my Minolta. They're awesome. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, they're no, I, I love the lenses. I just, I, I, there's a reason why Pentax stopped making <laughs> the M42 mount and went to the K mount. It's not a great, yeah. it's not a great mount for any sort of auto exposure, uh, yeah. function. And then, and then, and, and they wisely jump ship, and that's, that's why we have K mount. But so, no, yeah, I, I like them and I like the, I like M42 cameras for what they are. It's just when they, when you start thinking about them as aperture priority cameras, it all it, it's just it's a mess. It, yeah, there's there was only really probably three or four cameras that yeah. actually tried tried to do it, and they right. didn't do it a hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot of yeah. compromises. So, really it, so yeah. that yeah, it kind of was like a dying technology. Right. Yeah. It just wasn't. I mean, it's actually kind of the thing, honestly, that. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the Topcon RE Super, which had a lot of functions yeah. in it that in many ways were far ahead of what Nikon was doing yeah. at the time. But I mean, there's still ultimately that was tied to the exact amount, which has a very narrow throat. And it's just not ideal for, uh, you know, auto aperture shooting or anything like that. So yeah, I was really surprised when I saw you put that Biotar on the Topcon. I was like, I didn't realize that there were that you could do that. Same, so yeah, go. same, same mount. It's just that it's a it's a challenging mount when you try to do you know open aperture uh, metering and exposure, and that's kind of the same problem that M forty two has. And it's just yeah, you know, yeah. so and anything bayonet mount. Well, I mean, you know, it is technically it's it is a bayonet mount, but still, it's just the the lens design itself does not lend itself well necessarily to that function there are other mounts that do it better so yeah well it was designed by contacts in 1947 yeah. so you know it's kind of like almost pre-war technology really yeah right it's not 1930s technology they yeah. just yeah. yeah, I mean, same with same with the exact amount it's just a you know yeah. it was it was not the foreseen uh <laughs> It was not foreseen yeah. that that's where that 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 mount would sort of end up, right? I mean, so it, to yeah. me, it just makes sense that Pentax would realize that their competition was, you know, auto exposure cameras, and that that mount was not going to lend itself well to that going forward. So they designed a new mount. Completely makes yeah, sense. But that's pretty amazing that they. That's pretty ballsy when they did that, though. Yeah. It was like, sure. They changed the whole like landscape of you know by changing the mount. Yeah. But they had the Pentaxians, and they're like, right. "Yeah, cool, yeah." Right. It's and I mean, and 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 same same thing. Pentax M42 lenses mount beautifully on K-mount cameras with the Pentax-made adapter, original adapter, no problem. Yeah, you got you one know? of those, I bet. Yeah. Yeah, great adapter. So I mean, they're they're great lenses. They just and I mean, they're actually the late the M40 the later M42 Pentax stuff is way better made than the K-mount stuff. I mean, mm. just physically, construction-wise, you know, it's just yeah. it, the, the mount just doesn't lend itself well to, you know, open aperture shooting. So yeah, I'm really amazed by. I never really, I, I knew Pentax really well, and I kind of, it was just like a brand. It was like Canon, Pentax, Rara. It was like didn't really interest me. But you know what? The last few weeks, I've been researching. You know, those really early Asahi when it was Asahi and Asahi Flex cameras and they had like two years, I think they made the Asahi Flex cameras before they became Pentax. And, um, yeah, they made some killer lenses and, um, yeah. yeah. yeah so yeah, th that's really interesting. So yeah, I'm really interesting company Pentax really, 
really, really amazing stuff that they've done, actually. I think this might be a, a good time for me to say thank you to Carl uh, for uh, tipping me off about that uh, Asahi. Um, 58 58 millimeter f 2.4 heliol lens which i've now got with me um having bought on the show two weeks ago carl and simon both gazumped me yeah hey i found this really good lens and here's a link and have a look at it yeah and they both went out and bought it because i was going to pay it on monday and all the other ones only one of us yeah and carl was joking he was like yeah you can buy the other one it's got a little bit of haze in it <laughs> yeah, so I haven't been able to find another one. So yeah. anyway, I'm, I'm delighted. I'm to glad say, you're enjoying it. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm delighted to say that it's it's every bit as good as it was described as well. So, uh, you know. Well, I, I always get worried when you read stuff, you know, because like people, you, know, you get these myths, and it's like, you know, is that real or is it just like people blowing smoke? And I thought I really I found that lens, and I um, it's kind of like convoluted story of how I got to find it, but. I, the more I read about it, the more I thought, man, that's really, really amazing. It was the only um, Heliar lens up until like Voigtlander, like the Casino Voigtlander started redoing them. And I know Johnny's got that 15 millimeter um, super wide Heliar. Um, and um, this is like was made for one year. I think it was, what was it, Simon, like 1956? I'm not, I'm not sure, but I think the, the claim to fame is not so much about nobody making them. I think it's more about, I think this is still the only one that's ever been made for an SLR yeah. system, isn't it? Right. It's the only Heliar lens for an SLR. And actually the story is really interesting because what I dug up was that um, back in the day in Japan, like portraits were done with um, studio cameras, which like Simon has developed a passion for and so your big you know square timber box with a big brass lens and the emperor of japan apparently maybe this is a myth but apparently the emperor of japan would only allow his photograph to be taken with a heliar lens and so when asahi started designing lenses and some it weird and really kooky some guy sat around a table and said yeah let's make like a heliar like a, a studio format camera design lens and let's make it in an SLR. And, and, they, and they did it. And I'm like, it's really amazing that they did it and it's really cool. And, and apparently it takes really good photographs, according to Simon. I haven't <laughs> got one yet. <laughs> I mean, I've only taken a few test shots. I mean, I've got, I've got my dog running around the garden and I, I managed to get yeah, it. Yeah. Um, oh, and I like how you said, oh, yeah. And I got it and, and here and they're like, it's proof and it really is good. And I'm like, I'd, like I told you. Yeah, I think I told you. Did I not tell you? <laughs> um, you got to listen to me. Uh, it's, well, it's like like I said, be, said before when I've been justifying my purchase. I've been looking for one of these for a long time, so I've, I feel no guilt. Um, so, but thank you again, Carl. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a bad influence on you. you got the Schneider Xenon DKL as well. Well, to be fair, I did actually have one of those before. Um and then, and then you you're talking about, and I took a great picture with it, which I was really, really pleased pleased with. And it had just a beautiful painterly bokeh. And it, and it was then yeah. you you brought the subject back up again, and I was yeah. thinking, I really miss that lens. So, so yes, you are you're responsible for me to having it the second time round, definitely. And I'm I'm glad yeah, we've got probably, it. Now. Yeah, we probably pushed the price up now, but I got my one. So, well, so how with everybody else? Mine was cheap too. Oh, you'll be glad you'll be glad to hear. <laughs> um, but this this Hellier, it's just just worth just briefly talking about it i mean i've 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 used it very little so far um 
initially I thought it appeared to be low contrast, but that was when I was pretty much pointing it more or less at the sun. So, uh, which is to yeah. be ex- to be expected. And as Johnny is yeah. always telling me off, um, you know, these lenses are designed to be used with the hood. Um, yeah, although I've got to say, I, I looked up the price of a hood for this lens, and it was as, almost as much as I paid for the lens. So, um, I'm gonna- oh, you can use any. You don't have to get the original hood. No, Just but- any, any any hood that'll work. I, I sort of agree with that. No, no. It's got a really weird thread. Yeah, it's a really weird thread. Yeah, but it's it, that's what the series adapters are for. You get a series adapter and you're all set. Yeah, they'll, they'll, okay. I can help. You. I can help you with that if you need help. Yeah, they'll they'll they'll, they'll be a way. But the, the the I mean, I I just generally don't like to use hoods with with old lenses because I like the problems that it gives. You know, so uh, I like a little bit of veiling flare. I, I like well flaring flare in general. But what I my my first initial impression was that yes, it was it was being quite badly affected. Um, but I think that was in a really extreme extreme case. But then when I walked around with it uh, just in the garden, um, mm. I found actually. Actually, it it was it was high contrast and it was it, it's sharp and it's uh and that, so how would you think we were like talking a bit before the podcast so like in size and everything yeah. like kind of well, like it looked to me like when I first saw it I thought hell man that looks just like a Jupiter three but nicer it yeah. looks like not Soviet made it looks like German made yeah it's got it's, that nineteen fifties German lens look which obviously they copied. They looked at the German lenses and they really copied that style and design and everything. Um, and um, so, how does it compare to a Jupiter three? Well, I think you've just you've just summed it up. I mean, it looks very very similar to a to a Jupiter three, an, L, an LTM thirty nine Jupiter three is what it looks like. Um, mm. But the actual, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. It it does not look like a Japanese lens. If this had if no. if this was missing its nameplate. Uh, you know, I'd be saying it's a it's a Snyder or uh, maybe a, I'm not sure about a Leica, but it's a bit it's not not quite that that kind of styling. But it's it certainly mm. looks it it, feel, it feels Zeiss like. Um, and the actual design of the um, uh, the the preset ring and aperture ring is is very very Zeiss like as well. Um, and is it is it chromed brass? Yeah, it's it's a very heavy lens. Yeah, um, I like my Zenar. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and I just just to give a shout out, I. I bought um the but it's it's m37 uh which is obviously a, an odd size and i i bought yeah. uh, from raf camera uh i'm not sure if they're in the ukraine or in uh, russia um but i went to raf camera to get one of these um adapters and it's you know it's a yeah, it's a nice quality item really? and i think it deserves to have a quality one on this this lens yeah for sure yeah but you can buy cheap ones they're like eight dollars they're like plastic ones um, but yeah, he makes the really good ones. I think he makes them out of bronze. Um, I'm, I think, I'm not sure, yeah. but yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure what it's made and, out of. I mean, there's, I mean, that's actually a point about, you know, uh, 3d printed parts, which is what you're des- describing there. I think yeah, for, yeah. for some uses, I think they're absolutely fine. Um, yeah. in particular, in particular, you've got, uh, Ed, Ed Micro, I think it's Ed Micro, you, you say it is, and they, they do, um, uh, you can adapt, is it F, yeah, FD to EOS and and things like that, and they, and they use, um, I think it's three D printed, but it's 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 something on those lines, and and that works really well with those. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas with a thread, um, and a thread mount, yeah. I I feel that's just asking too too much of um, of, the, yeah. of that kind of technology, really. Yeah, yeah, I'd be afraid the frigging thing would fall out and crash on the ground. Yeah, like exactly. I had them not. I had a Minolta zoom and that happened. Oh my God, it broke my heart. Jesus. Um, yeah. 
So, and the weird thing is, is like, so there's like, they came up with the Asahi Flex. I think it was, no, yeah, it doesn't matter anyway. But so they changed from Asahi Flex um, within 18 months to two years over to Pentax. And when they changed to Pentax, all the lenses look completely different. They're not like the uh, Asahi, uh, the Pentax Super Takamas, you know, from the 60s and the 70s, uh, you know, like people are really familiar with that kind of, they're kind of like the 1950s German lenses, but ribbed, but, but the black painted. Um, the earlier ones are kind of a lot more rounded barrels, but they're definitely, you look at them, they've got the kind of Pentax look to them. The, the, the one that you've got, those early ones for the Asahi Flex, they kind of look like, yeah, they're not like any German lens, but they've got the, like the manufacturing standards is kind of similar. They look rounded though, whereas the German lenses are completely different. So yeah, they're pretty cool. Yeah. Well, thank you again. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. I'll find one. I'll get the freaking hood, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I th and then I'll tax you for it. Yeah. I think I think that's a that's a, a good good point to um, to bring start start to wind the show down a little bit now. Um, and um, so I think we. It's, we haven't done any feedback for a while and um, we've certainly had a, there's been a couple of emails that have come in but one in particular um, uh, Johnny I think you've uh, you've, you've got it there and it's probably worth just just covering that off and any anything else you might feel yeah sure sure I can uh, I can do this one so we got an email from and we I think we should mention that we are um, we are now I don't know if we've officially said this but we're going to give more weight and attention to the emails we receive at classiclensespodcast at gmail.com. Uh, probably then we will to uh, comments that uh, happen elsewhere um, that are more kind of comments between, you know, different folks. Um, we, if we're getting a direct email, that's direct feedback. We're going to, we're going to spend a little more time talking about that. So, um, so we did get an email from uh, Jared Tremper um, uh, at classic lenses uh, podcast at gmail.com. Um, and, and Jared is a local guy here in the Chicago area. I actually met him a few weeks ago. Uh, I know we gave him a shout out. Uh, but Jared, Jared had a comment about uh, uh, episode 37. Um, and he says, That's with, uh, with, with Anil. With Anil, yes. And, and and he said, just a quick note of appreciation for the podcast. I really enjoyed episode 37 this week. Um, yes, a bit more tension in this one, but I like that everyone stood their ground on their convictions, even as everyone was respectful to the other. Not all photographers do that, as you know. Uh, also, Johnny's response to Anil regarding uh, portraits with classic lenses as, uh, quote, truth was actually more profound uh, as were Anno's comments about it. Seems to me truly great photographers that stand the test of time aren't worried about shooting manipulated magazine covers. Extraordinary portraiture reveals the soul of the subject, doesn't it? Um, mm. That's the truth to which Johnny responded so naturally. Oh, I think Carl, I think Simon wanted me to read that just because he knew how uncomfortable I'd be reading uh that lovely praise for my my genius comments in episode 37 so thank you very much simon you're welcome you're welcome <laughs> and actually i also think this is a great opportunity for me to uh, to reiterate that Car uh, that anil was wrong and i was right <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> 
Ah, that's shameless. No comeback. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, I, I can't hear Anil saying anything, so I guess he agrees with me. So before we go, can I give a shout out? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, we, have, we haven't gone quite yet, but go, go for it. So I want to give a shout out to you guys. So thank you, Simon. And thank you, Johnny. And thank you, Carl. I know you're listening. We love you, even though you couldn't be bothered to turn up, you bastard. Um, because uh, you, there's a lot of hard work that goes into doing stuff like this. People don't understand all the hours of research and the planning and the dealing with. I used to write for magazines, um, Prime Magazine. And, and, you know, there's a lot, a lot of work that goes into it. And, you know, the passion that you guys have, and bringing all these amazing people to the table and being able to listen listen to them, you know, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart because I'm really passionate about this and it's really, really cool. Since I've joined the Facebook group, I've met so many cool people and I've interacted with all these amazing people and and i got to say, and there's a lot of Facebook groups and sometimes people don't behave too well and I'd say 99% of people in, 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 in your um, photography with classic lenses Facebook group, the behavior is really good. So I don't know if that's because like they all have classic lenses or you know whatever, but it's really nice to see. So my shout out is to you guys because thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. And it's a big privilege to be invited to chat with you guys. You're my heroes. There you go. Oh my god. I, I, I guess you got that. I guess you got that. I can hear Johnny squirming from here. No, uh, I guess you. I guess you. I guess uh, Simon's PayPal payment came through to you for making <laughs> yeah. those comments, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> five dollar, five dollar. <laughs> well, um, well, well. Thank, thank, thank you very much, Sean. On behalf of Carl as well, I'm, I'm sure he'd appreciate yeah, that as well. Yeah, um, he's doing super, super important. So I'll forgive him. Yeah, it's a, it's. A, yeah. <laughs> It's inter- it's an interesting comment though about about the Facebook group. Um, oh, I know what he's doing. He's trying out that friggin' hell yeah lens. <laughs> he's, he's got one and he's polishing the scratches out. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but um, no, it's interesting about about the Facebook group. We, I mean, we we try hard um, as a, we've, I mean, we've got quite a large admin team um, in in that in that group. So there's usually somebody there um, where, wherever it is. Yeah, we've got admins yeah. all over, all over the world, and. Um, we do we do try and keep it light and uh, keep it positive um so yeah, I, I kind of have a rule and i i know people don't follow this rule but you know i see stuff and i just think oh that's stupid or that's wrong or whatever and but i'm like even if i'm right i know i'm right um is me telling that person that they're wrong and i'm right is that actually going to change their mind yeah exactly is it going to achieve anything <laughs> i was like right. no and Oh, the classic one is the person, the poor person, who said about Anil's photo of his wife. I don't think they were really ill-intentioned. <laughs> I think they were just kind of like, um, like Anil said it perfectly, you know, they were kind of like, that's the dominant paradigm and that's just kind of they were repeating the dominant paradigm. But, you know, if one was... Um, less graceful it could be said that it was a a little bit tactless (laughs) so yeah but that's the one that i remember but uh, you know if that's the worst thing you know i I think that's really good and that's great that all the people in here we all respect each other because that's what i tried i said at the start of the show that this whole stupid thing 
you know, like film is right and digital is wrong. I mean, I just find that like fatuous. I mean, it's like saying mm -hmm. to my daughter, my daughter likes drawing with crayons and no, your art's really shit. Um, you know, here's a digital drawing tablet. You need to learn how to do digital. My daughter <laughs> right. loves, grew up drawing and now she's digital and she totally loves it. And I'm like, I buy her pens and pencils, doesn't want to touch it. It's what she loves. It's what works for her. And whatever works for you is right for you. And yeah. there's no right, there's no wrong. It's like the Kadelka story I told, you know. Somebody gave him a cheap, shitty Polaroid camera and it changed his life. He wrote this beautiful, beautiful book, published all the photographs about how that camera um, completely, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It gave him his pep back. And he was able to follow his passion again, you know, because he couldn't do street photography. He was like 85 years old and stuck in some apartment in New York. So he just worked with what he had in his little apartment, his little glass figurines and and his Polaroid camera, and he made beautiful, beautiful photographs. So you don't need to be um, have models and you don't have to have, um, you know, an expensive camera and you don't have to have the latest digital camera with two SD sockets. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I – You don't I, need to I, just one QXD yeah. slot. Yeah, it's whatever. XQD I mean, slot. I, 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I come back to the story, and I, I kind of, I got to remember who it was. I, there's a guy, and he was in a town in northern England, and he had like a little point and shoot camera, and he spent like 20 years, and all he did was wandered around. He was famous for, like, just shooting people, and he would take photographs every day with this crappy little point and shoot camera. And it wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't like a Contax T or anything flash. It was literally like your 80s little crappy point and shoot camera. But he knew what that camera did. And he knew about lighting and he knew about composition and um, his photographs were fantastic. You don't need to have expensive lenses. Um, and like that lens that we hunted down, that Asahi, Simon got that for like less than $100, right, Simon? Yeah, it was uh, – I think it was about – Yeah. Actually, yeah, there's uh, duty on, on the top of it. So it probably came in yeah. at about $100 by the time it got here. Yeah, and I'm like doing myself a disservice here because now you – bastards are all going to rush off to eBay and be, I'll be fighting you. But <laughs> that's a really, really cool lens that's got a great history that's really interesting that probably I reckon is going to make some great photographs um, for less than 100 bucks. Um, so don't be, uh, you know, don't drink the Kool-Aid and, you know, think that you have to have a friggin' Leica M3 with, a you know, a Sumitar, you know. You can shoot great photographs with what you got at hand. The whole point is go out and take photographs. That's the whole point. Can't argue with any of that. That's uh, well, yep. well, well said. Yep. Um, one, uh, actually we're going to, I'm going to do a shout out for ourselves as well. Um, and that's, uh, I think it was on Tuesday. I think it was of last week. Um, I set up uh, an account on a website called Kofi, that's K-O-F-I. And that came about yeah. having seen uh, a tweet by Hamish Gill. Uh, because he he, he, uh, yeah. he put a, a post out uh, about 
Kofi or coffee. I think it's yeah. probably coffee, isn't it? It was just just spelled coffee, differently. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, and I thought that's interesting. And uh, and it, and what yeah. it is, it's a site that enables people to make donations um, to yeah. uh, to whoever. And I thought, well, you know what? It'll be nice to give people the opportunity. <laughs> that's one way they put yeah. it into um, to uh, if they wish to. It's it's. Um, can, you know, completely and utterly optional uh, but if people want to contribute to um the the podcast and uh, because there are hosting fees we've been paying hosting fees all the way back to january um no so- i'll call bs on that no you gotta make a coffee subscription if you listen to the podcast with <laughs> bad karma that's it <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's uh, the, the idea behind it is uh, you can you can go onto that and make a, a, a small donation by by PayPal and um, yeah and we've, and we've got so far four people have uh, have donated to us and I'm I'm going to embarrass them now by mentioning actually I can say three of them one of them is just initials so if you don't want uh, us to name you and um, and embarrass you then just use initials but uh, but we've got Ben Kuto Nigel Cliff and Jess Lance and somebody called T L um, they have all uh, contributed to us and um I've just i've already thanked you individually but thank you again because it's it's a it's a real big help and if um if we get to the point where actually there's there's more money coming in than to actually than to cover the cost of the show this is not about making money um it's a case of you know if we can cover the cost of the show then there's there's money over and if this money continues to come in then what we think they're doing is perhaps buying a, a lens and uh, or lenses talking about them and potentially doing competitions and things like that so um oh say, yeah like a giveaway eg- yeah, ex- exactly exactly so uh, so anybody yeah, thinking that we're, we're trying to line our pockets we're, we're not we just want to co- if we can cover our costs and then we can potentially give things back then that's what we want to do so um so yeah. log yeah. on to coffee.com that's ko-fi.com and just search for classic lenses um you, I think you can just put classic lenses. You can put photography with classic lenses as well. But I think if you just type in classic lenses, that will probably find us. So, uh, so again, um, thank you for those uh, four people who have already contributed. And uh, and it'll be great if uh, more people can do that. And as I say, we'll uh, we can do some exciting stuff if we if we have enough money for it. Yeah, biggest contributor gets a shout out next week. Yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> no 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 i'm not i'm not going to do that but uh, but certainly if uh, if you don't want i think we probably will uh, name and uh, embarrass people but if you don't want your name read out just uh, just just put your name in the in initials and uh, we'll just like I say i can thank people individually and uh, and, and we'll do that so uh, again thank you very much that's very very cool yeah great it's a great yeah steven from um cosmo photo is doing it as well yeah right so uh Johnny, have you got anything else you might want to say or do you want to start uh, saying I goodbye? I just want to mention quickly, uh, we talk about Instagram uh, in this wrap-up segment quite often um, and not something we've done a lot with, which you can cast the blame for that right here at this microphone. Um, <laughs> so uh, something new that we are going to be doing and there'll be more about this kind of coming up, but um, we have been promoting the hashtag uh, uh, classic lenses on Instagram, which has actually been wonderful because if you go on Instagram and look look up that uh, hashtag, uh, which I'm going to do right now and tell you how many 
photos have been tagged with hashtag classic lenses because it's actually pretty impressive. And I think that's mostly due to us here because we're really the only ones using it. When we started uh, using that hashtag, there weren't a lot of photos up there. So there are 1,900 photos on Instagram tagged with uh, hashtag classic lenses. And the idea was that we would be pulling these into our curated uh, face, uh, curated Instagram account for um, the podcast here, which we haven't done a lot of with again, which is my fault. So um, we're going to be working with the folks over at uh, the best vintage lenses Instagram account. And they are going to be also pulling from that hashtag. Um, they have a hashtag that they've been using for quite a while, which is best vintage lenses. Um, which has quite a few uh, photos associated with it as well. Um, so they pull from those. So if you'd like to get featured uh, at Best Vintage Lenses, I would say use the hashtag Best Vintage Lenses and also the hashtag Classic Lenses on Instagram. Um, and they will be doing some featuring of uh, things that we're going to post um, through the uh, uh classic lenses podcast instagram which will be mainly focused on going forward um highlighting some particular lenses that uh that that we use as part of the podcast team so new things going to come up there for the instagram stuff uh so keep your eyes open about that and we will we'll talk about it more in future episodes so um so just that little bit of info right there so yeah. um cheyenne how can the people keep up with you and follow you out, outside of this podcast okay so the easiest way to follow my work is instagram i am big shot photos um on facebook i am big shot polaroids or cheyenne morrison um and i'm going to do a post after the show with the lenses that we've discussed with links to some of my articles and um i'm also on um smug mug uh, which is cheyennemorrison.smugmug.com and uh, you can see a lot of my photographs there. Smugmug's a really good company if you're looking to get photo hosting. They actually bought Flickr and the guys that run Smugmug are really, really cool because Flickr was in danger of disappearing and all of the incredible like groups and stuff that were on there would have been lost and Smugmug has saved that. So um, yeah, I really, really like Smugmug. And it's a really cool company. Okay, and uh, Johnny? Oh, you can find me uh, best way online is at Instagram. I am at System Photography there. Um, you can also find me um, almost every day of the week except for Sunday and Monday at uh, Central Camera Company in Chicago at the camera sales counter. Uh, so glad to catch up with you there. And last but not least, let's make sure I mention the email again, which is classiclensespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us a message. So, and um, I can be found in a few places. Um, I'm posting more and more on Instagram at the moment now. Uh, so you can find me there as Simon Forster Photographic, which is also the name of my website, except you just need to put co.uk after it. I'm um, also on Flickr. I think you can find me as Simon Forster. Um, I have an eBay shop, uh, but you can find that if you do a seller search for It's Fozzy. That's I-T-S-F-O-Z-Z-Y. Um, I'm sort of on Twitter. <laughs> 
I keep saying I'm going to do more on it. I'm, I'm sort of doing a bit on Twitter, so uh, that, that's, that's getting a little bit better. Um, we've done the email address. Uh, I'm going to do the bit I keep forgetting every week and thank uh, Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for our uh, theme music. Um, so finally, I just want to say another big thanks for Cheyenne for coming on again. And that was Flynn in the background there barking. Um, <laughs> Uh, and that's Flynn again. Um, so uh, thank you, Cheyenne, for uh, being a great guest um, and being patient enough to pretty much do the show all over again. Um, oh, that was right. God closes a door and opens a window. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, um, so right people know what right? that damn window, don't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, so I hope you've enjoyed today's show, and it'll be great again. Great if you can join us again next week. Thank you. Goodbye. There we go. All right, excellent. Yay! Oh, excellent. I didn't do my desert island lenses though. Oh. Ah. <laughs>